in terms of roles, we want our coaches to coach, our scouts to scout, our nerds to do nerd things independently of each other so that there isn't some infiltration of biases from each. Now, the key and the hardest part, right, is engineering that ecosystem where we can come together, collaborate to compete. Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where we talk to experts and share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your season two guest host, Annie Duke, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the educational nonprofit committed to the understanding that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. In this season, we're turning our attention to decision-making in the world of high-performance sports. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll start to think differently about the critical role of decision-making in the competitive sports we follow so passionately, as well as discover practical ways to improve your own decision-making. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love if we were all even a little bit better at making decisions. The Alliance is building a national movement to bring decision education to every student in this country. But this podcast is for you, the adults who are already out in the world making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. I'm so excited to welcome my guests, yes, that's plural, today, Rich Eisen and Les Snead. Rich Eisen is one of television's most well-known sports anchors from the past decade, most notably as the face of the NFL Network. After several years on ESPN Sports Center, Rich was the first on-air talent added to NFL Network's roster in 2003. During his time with the network, he has hosted NFL Total Access Kickoff, NFL Game Day Morning, NFL Game Day Highlights, and Thursday Night Football. I'm not exactly sure when he sleeps, given that spread across morning and night. And he has also anchored the network's on-location coverage of the NFL Draft and the NFL Scouting Combine, the Pro Football Hall of Fame Induction Weekend, and the Super Bowl. Rich also hosts the Rich Eisen Show, a daily sports radio program, and is a four-time Sports Emmy nominee in the Outstanding Studio Host category. As part of the hashtag Run Rich Run charitable campaign, Rich competes annually in the 40-yard dash at the NFL Scouting Combine while wearing a suit. Les Sneed my second guest, is general manager of the Los Angeles Rams, a position he has held since 2012. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology and originally planned to attend medical school until he was offered a graduate assistant coaching position while in college. He began his professional career working as a scout, first for the Jacksonville Jaguars and then for the Atlanta Falcons, before becoming director of player personnel in Atlanta in 2009. Just three years later, he was named GM of the Rams, and his tenure has been described as being marked by strategic, aggressive moves that have created a strong core nucleus of talent and improved depth throughout the roster. Les also has a keen interest in the decision sciences and in how they can be leveraged in the NFL. So I'm looking forward to such a great conversation between two amazing thinkers who are coming at it from totally different angles. So first of all, just to start, Let's talk about why you are both on here together. If you can talk a little bit about how you met and how you know each other. Well, I'll start first. Les drafted me many, many <laughs> years ago because he saw me running the 40-yard dash, right, Les? <laughs> Isn't that what it was? Is it that was, was that, and you, you said, when does Rich have time to sleep? He has plenty of time to sleep, but no time to train for the 40. That's <laughs> correct. 
That's correct. But, but that's you why. know what? The 40 means nothing. Doesn't oh. mean you can't play football. <laughs> it's about what's in here, Les. Yes. It's about what beats inside your chest. And I've got that. I've got that every day. I wake up and I look in the mirror every day. I see it. But Les and I go way back, obviously, not just with football, but I met Kara, his wife, way back in the day in the mid to late 90s when I was on ESPN Sports Center and she was working at ESPN. So I've known Kara a long time, met Les through Kara, and then of course the NFL, my work with the NFL. And that's how that's how we know each other, right, Les? Rich has got to be some sort of brother-in-law, right? Once once I We're family. Uh, began we are, a relationship yeah. with Kara, you you immediately know you're it's you're going to spend like many uh, many a meals listening to Kara <laughs> and Rich tell stories and they're both laughing right Rich right yeah. now and then I think myself and Rich's bride sit back and watch those two have fun. Yes, that's <laughs> we have all been at those types of dinners. <laughs> yes, we have. What's the what's the fastest that you've ever run the 40? You're asking me or less because you know less when was the last time you ran a 40 less? When was the last time Ooh, you ran a 40? Is that at Auburn? That would probably be at Auburn. Yeah, it would be maybe 1992 or three. And what'd you run? Fastest 40. Yeah. uh, Probably on a track too, Surface Matters. Sure, of course. uh, Maybe four, six, seven. Mm. And you know, you break four, seven, like there's probably nothing, right? There's no difference between a four, six, seven or a four, seven. You know how I knew that was fast, Rich? Wow. Because he said a four, six, seven. He wasn't yeah. like, eh, you know, about a five. <laughs> like no, when you're that precise, it has to be fast. Absolutely. It's like, you know, you call it a Porsche when it's somebody else's car, but it's a Porsche if you drive it. There you go. You know, right. like so, that's the way it works, you know? So, but my fastest time was five, nine, four. But again, I run it in a suit. It's the logo yeah. of my show right there. <laughs> so... You know, I, I just like to say that was a missed opportunity for you to say that the fastest time you would ever run was a four six six. I know that I would have done like the price is right, like closest <laughs> without going over. But no, I've got to be truthful. That's that's part of my brand is I'm I'm real news and I talk about real <laughs> stuff. And but I have fun and we raise money now for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And on the day that we're talking for your pod, Annie, we announced that we did this year's run this past weekend in Les's football home in SoFi. And we had eight donors come for the chance to run with eight NFL legends on the field during the Rams season ticket holder event that happened on Saturday. And we got Jerry Rice and Ray Lewis and Chris Carter and Tori Holt to name a Ram great and a handful of others, Rod Woodson, Chris Carter, Hall of Famers to run with eight donors who for the chance to do it, we raised over a million bucks and we've got two more weeks to go to the NFL draft where we're going to show the contents of that run. Well, and, bravo. Uh, that's amazing. That's what we're doing. We're doing our best for James St. Two Children's. doesn't Week. matter how fast you are. That's did, the number, right? About- did the other people have track clothes on? They did. They, they, they had track clothes on, but I run in my suit because that's my work clothes. That's what right. we usually run it at the combine. But due to the pandemic this year, we had to figure out something else to do. And so it's not the shoes I've less. I wish I could say it was the shoes I run. Oh, yeah. I run in actual running shoes now. It's yeah, the I remember suit, that now. It's the suit jacket. It's like it, it acts like a parachute behind me. You know, that's so if there's anything that I can no use as an excuse for my lack of speed, it'll be that. But at any rate, that's probably not what you want to talk so about. So where where can just well, while we're on the topic though, where can people go to be able to support 
Thank you for asking to NFL.com slash run rich run. That's the, as you were kind enough to mention with the hashtag. Yeah, that's where people can go. And we're raising money for St. Jude. That's all donation based and families who go there never see a bill for the kids healthcare or for lodging or for travel or anything. It's heaven on earth. Oh, that's amazing. So I'd like to start with, you know, what I what I love about having the two of you on is that you are living in, in sort of different parts of the ecosystem where you're looking at things from different points of view. So I just want to start with, you know, obviously, we've seen this evolution across different sports, starting with baseball, you know, about the influence of analytics on decision making, you know, starting in baseball and then moving its way into the NFL. You know, one of the things that that I think about is from the perspective of people watching it, it feels a little bit like nobody was paying attention to analytics. And then all of a sudden, everybody was paying attention to analytics. And I know that when you feel those sort of tipping point shifts, that's, that's not true, that there there was something brewing underneath. But from your perspective, Rich, you know, how has it impacted the way that, that fans are viewing the game, the way sure. that, you know, you, you yourself are viewing the game and the way that you talk about it? Well, I guess the way analytics is for somebody in Les's position, it tries to help him and his coaching staff first guess. For me in the media, it allows us to second guess quite frequently, <laughs> quite honestly. And, you know, no greater moment in the last several years involving analytics and an immediate second guess and a hue and cry amongst fans occurred in the World Series in the deciding game six last year when the Tampa Bay Rays had their star pitcher, Blake Snell, on the mound. And he was dominating the Dodgers in a must-win game for the Rays to force a game seven. And their manager removed Snell because the way that they operate is mostly through analytics first. That Snell was facing the Dodgers lineup for a third time through, and the analytics have proven out that the pitcher becomes that much more susceptible to slowing down third time through the order Whereas the eyes of everybody in that stadium and also sitting on their couches at home could see what was happening, that Snell was easily still dominating and they removed him. And Mookie Betts, the Dodgers star player, smiled into his dugout, which gave a visual to go along with what everybody was thinking, which is what the hell is the manager thinking? And sure enough, instantly the Dodgers took the lead and won the World Series. And that started a whole argument about what is the role of analytics and isn't there a role still for good old fashioned gut and feel. And we see it all the time and we're seeing it more in the NFL. I think about when to go for two points and when not to go for two points. Normally the concept certainly has been traditionally, which you really can't say because the two point conversion hasn't been in the NFL for very long. But traditionally, with the two-point conversion, you go for two only when you need to catch up, only when you need that extra point to actually tie a game. Not going for two when you're already up by a score and an extra point would put you up nine, forcing the other team to go and try and have to score twice. You don't go for two there. You just kick the extra point. We're seeing more teams go for two because the possibility of making that small conversion, what it would mean in terms of the lead that you would get, that the odds of converting on that small two-yard play actually pays so much dividends, you go for it there. Or when you're down by 14 points, instead of kicking the extra point there, you go for two there 
making the next touchdown an actual game winner with the extra point. And the math doesn't really add up to the conventional thinking fan, but I can already see you nodding your head, Les. You're seeing more and more conversations about going for two and when to go for it, even though it might leave you hamstrung for points later on. At least you know what you have to do the next time you score, which you're assuming you have to do anyway in order to win. That's the concept you're seeing in the NFL that's confusing a lot to fans and causing a lot of fans to, again, second guess. Rich makes a great point. I, I immediately think of Sean, our head coach. He's head coach, not manager, but I am pretty sure, right, the, the big data would say Tampa Bay might have been right, right? Big data might have supported that third time through the lineup, all of those things that it's over the course of, you know, how many games they play 160 games and it might have been a COVID shortened season, but that, that big data says do this, but there, I know Sean will always talk about in the two point conversion situation is the situation. What's the fill of the game in that situation. Wow. The Dodgers have no confidence in hitting this guy. Maybe it's best to stick with him as Rich alluded to the Dodgers batters now felt like, wow. Okay. We, we got a chance now because Another pitcher's in, but on the two-point conversion, it might be we just had a long drive and we do have a gut feel that the defense is gassed. They're very tired. They're not reacting, you know, like they normally would. So this might be a, a time to steal a point or, or something like that. So that it's, it's really taking the data and what the big data says or, you know, the, the big data will tell you what the probabilities are. And then at that point, using some version of intuition that you, you know, aggregate, you determine during the live contest of of when to use it, when not to. So, yeah. So this is a question that I have in relation to the World Series in relation to some very famous plays in the past few years in football. You know, 2015, the end of that Super Bowl coming to mind for me, obviously, is, you know, I feel like we have a little bit of this resulting problem, right? Which is you have the analytics, they tell you what the statistics are right? Like, what is this going to do for your win probability? So this should be an input into the decision. And then the coach obviously is taxed with making that decision. But it feels like, like, if we go to that, the World Series example, if they take them out and and they win, you know, does anybody say boo? Do they say this is great? Like, this is why we love analytics, because they give you this great data. They do not. You don't they think do so? No, nobody, nobody says, well, great, great job, mathematicians, great job with your slide. No, but, but nobody's like saying, oh, what an idiot for, you know, no, nobody's well, they're calling saying it, that out. They're saying it in real time. They're saying it in mm-hmm. real time. But if it works out, the number of times it does work out, but it, it, it definitely frustrates a lot of fans, again, in baseball, because, you know, I had Daryl Morey, who is, you know, who runs the Sloan MIT sports conference and is the king of analytics in basketball, you know, who I think we all know, Daryl. And he basically said baseball was first, the NBA was right behind it, and the NFL is bringing up the rear on analytics. And I just don't know if this sport just doesn't lend itself to the similar, you know, concept of analytics that the NBA and Major League Baseball do, or again, it's just an old school, you know, it's an old school sport that, that it doesn't. But to answer your question, you know, fans don't understand it in baseball and don't like it when decisions on bringing a major leaguer up is based on somebody's bat speed or exit velocity of how fast they can hit a ball out of the stadium or some pitcher's spin rate on their curveball. 
And and now we're seeing a game in baseball where somebody steps up to the plate and half the time that person either strikes out, walks or hits a home run, that there is no more of a variety in the game because analytics has kind of dictated that fans don't like that. They don't like the shift where they figure out, let's put 16 people on one side of the bases because the analytics say that this person will hit the ball in that direction. They don't like that. The one thing I particularly despise is in baseball, they will now have not a starting pitcher, but what they call an opener, where that pitcher will go and pitch one time through the order, be removed, and then the so-called starting pitcher will come in and face the order second through four times to get a little bit better to somebody who can close the game. It just doesn't look the same anymore. And I think people associate that with analytics as opposed to, hey, they're kind of right. Like that's how someone can actually win a game. You know what I mean? Like that's the way it goes in the mind's eye of a fan of people who call into my show and talk about it. So let me just circle back, first of all, to the, to the, and I, I, this, Les, I want to just sort of get your thoughts on this to the understanding of like what's happening in baseball with football really bringing up the rear on analytics. It's baseball is a little bit more individual people acting individually, standing in the same place. And, you know, they happen to be geographically located together, but they're, they're, you know, they're sort of isolated from each other in a way that makes analytics a little bit easier in terms of trying to figure out how you value a particular person or, or a player or what you're supposed to do in a particular situation. And my understanding is that football gets gets to be very complex. So obviously in basketball, you've got five people on your team interacting with five other people. In football, you get up to 11 people interacting with 11 other people. And then there's the issue of they don't play the same side of the ball and so on and so forth. So Less do I have that even in the vicinity of a reasonable understanding of why the NFL is slower. It's because it's more complex. Is that right? I think that, yes, that is one reasonable, rational, and I think truth to why we're pulling up the rear. I think there is some truth to what Rich said. Maybe it's a more old school, but if I give you some quick examples, whether it's strategy, whether it's evaluation, a lot of times in football, let's go to the Rich's example where you take basically the the nine defenders and maybe you put them all on one side of the baseball park because you know the batter obviously a large percentage of the time is going to pull the ball that does happen in football but it's less let's call it less noticeable let's let's take it if we know this particular wide receiver runs this subset of route tree when he's lined up on the left side or in the slot or outside the hash or inside the numbers we can disguise or design a coverage that tilts that way, but the quarterback and the offense may see that and then go to one of those other players, which is easier to do than maybe the batter in baseball now going, I'm going to right field instead of left. So sometimes we're using that. It's just less noticeable because there are more people in the field and more, more complex, right? So that's one good example. What we can't do either, and I've found it fascinating, right, in those minor league baseball parks where you can, where they have those sophisticated cameras and can see that maybe this pitcher in double A baseball has unique rotation that is going, what they're going to say is predict, you know, let's call it getting a lot of major leaguers out and they can make this trade for this pitcher a little bit harder in football. Let's take the quarterback. We can we can measure the rotations on a football, but it doesn't necessarily 
always correlate to accuracy or complete passes because the receivers have to be where they're supposed to be. The you know the the, the offensive line has to block. So it's there's some nuances there that probably put us in third place. But I do know this: there's a lot of right people who are trying to at least help us catch baseball and basketball. And I'm not sure we'll be able to do that to their level based on what you said, Annie, but we're, you know, we're trying to get closer to second place. But I mean, again, the sport, as you pointed out, Annie, which uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, the untouchables was similar to the Robert De Niro scene of Al Capone with a baseball bat saying a man stands alone at the plate. It's time for what individual achievement, but when he stands in the field, he's part of a team. That was basically what you just said without also bashing one of our heads in with a baseball bat in a violent <laughs> manner. But, you know, uh, it's just a different sport, though. It is true. With baseball, it really is one pitcher, one hitter. What spin rate can do and what somebody's bat speed can do with a pitch and what some group of fielders can do and be collected in a spot. You know, if, if Les says there's one guy who knows the tendency in the route tree and we send some people that way, you know, there is a smart quarterback that watches that and may have the same film study and then call a play to actually use that against Les and the Rams. And that's really not, I mean, baseball and, and the NBA are different. There are a lot of teams in the NFL are beginning to use analytics in terms of the two-point conversion in that manner, like I said. But again, it's mostly old school folks still that just say, screw it. It's the third, fourth quarter. I'm going to go with the gut and feel. I know what the game is. I know how I've set up the defense through three quarters of play calling or the uh, offense and with three quarters of play calling on the defense. And they're going to go with their gut and feel and they got a special play. And I, I, I kind of feel the same way, you know, and I'm a, you know, I feel like I'm a smart guy. I, I on this show, you know, I, I kind of poke a little bit of fun of the NFL having something called next gen stats. That's what they call them. And the next gen stats are this guy runs 21 miles an hour here. And this person, you know, can, you know, has, has this sort of uh, catch rate in the anywhere between five and eight yards and stuff like that. And I'm a fan. I'm trying to figure out what does that really mean? So on my show, I have something called old gen stats. It's things like touchdowns, you know, things like wins, you know, I should probably pay more attention to analytics, certainly since Annie, as you might understand this as well, maybe this is why I get called on the turn and river in my home game all the time by people that might be doing the math a hell of a lot better than I am. And you're nodding your head that I'm right. Well, I mean, I I've, I've played, I I've played think. poker with you. <laughs> hey, Annie, you know? yeah. so, here's one for you, know? you, Rich, for your old gen stats. Wade, yes, Phillips. Wade Phillips, who is our defensive coordinator. And we'll pro- should be in the Hall of Fame for defensive coordinating, right? Old gen stat, you say, look, we score more points than them. We'll win yeah. the game. But if you know Wade, who is a good poker player from Texas, so he might not come across as brilliant, but he's brilliant. But what he would tell you, too, is anytime you look at the scoreboard, as simple as that, that will tell you what strategy you should use. Are you up by 14, down by 14, right? So some of that old gen stats. But I do think... Let's go back to the 40 and Rich ran the 59440. And there's net gen stats where it says this this Rich is actually playing football at 20 miles per hour. And what we've always said in football is, is the 40-yard dash is very simple on your central nervous system. And you can train to improve that. And by that, I mean, you can you can work with sprinters and track coaches to improve your start to improve the, you know, trying to stay in a straight line instead of, you know, weaving until you cross that finish line. 
football we see is a little more sophisticated, right? You're never running 40 yards without the enemy trying to disrupt you. You're having to think about what play you're running. Did the quarterback just audible it? So it's you can be a fast on the 40-yard dash or like Rich, slow at the 40-yard dash. Thank but you subsequently play football a lot faster. So some of that next gen, some of that technology helps. And interestingly, I've seen with the strategy, some of the purists in the NFL and some of our new new school coaches will tell you there, there's been a push for the NFL to, let's say, take technology to the sidelines and and be able to maybe watch film of the of the game that's going on in that moment on the sidelines, mm. which would probably be cool and, and, and maybe add to the fan experience, the, the entertainment factor. What all coaches who are really good strategists say is that will dilute game theory in that what happens, like, like y'all mentioned, we have all the analytics to say this is what our opponent's been doing. But if they call that play for the receiver to go simply right instead of left, because they know we've been preparing for him to go left. If we see that, if you're able to watch that on the sidelines in real time, you're able to adjust a lot quicker instead of like at the poker table where you have to use your brain, you have to use your your mind, your preparation, and then go through all the emotions and the tilts and the and, and all of those things. So it's an interesting debate of how much technology do you bring to the sideline and does that actually dilute the game theory or the gamesmanship, you know, that, that goes on on game day. Yeah. So I I'd love to, I'd love to get a sense from you less on, you know, obviously there's so much data now to inform the decisions, but you know, there's, there's kind of different ways that people think about data. There'd be people who, you know, and I think this would be more likely to be something you could do in baseball who say the data is the data. Just do what it says, right? And then there's people who would say, none of that data stuff, this is old school. I, I can see what we're supposed to do and I, I don't want to pay any attention to that. And then obviously there's the interaction between the two. And I imagine that, you know, for you as a GM, that the way that that, that is now influencing the discussion and the way that people are interacting with each other and how they're thinking about the decision-making is is more in flux than it has been in the past, not just from the standpoint of, you know, how do you have people within your organization, scouts, the analysts, the coaching staff, interacting with each other when it comes to the use of data and how do you think about that? But then also, I'm, I'm just interested from the standpoint of somebody who's a, a GM, how do you deal with, you know, to Rich's point, the, the second guessing of the fans and the second guessing of the media, which might be a little bit like cherry picking, right? Like, if you lose and you do something that the analytics didn't say, it feels like maybe you're going to get a, you know, you didn't follow the analytics kind of response. And if you lose and you do something that the analytics say, so we can take Pete Carroll at the end of that Super Bowl or Tampa Bay, you're going to get the finger, you know, the either way. And it seems to be a little bit like, do you win or lose it? Fans can't see the up and down of the win probability. Right. They, they only can see whether you won or lost. So I'd love to know. I'd love to understand from you. And I know that was kind of a complicated question. How do you manage the ecosystem both internally in relationship to the analytics and then also externally in terms of the way that the fans are now thinking about the game and might be talking about it? It's called a long term contract, right, Les? <laughs> yes. The long term t- contract and stay off of social media. <laughs> <laughs> 
Those, those two, and and we're. But you, to answer your question, you mentioned coaching. Let's call it scouting, and let's call it. We've got the title in our buildings, the Nerds Nest. They embrace the word nerd. So, in terms of roles, we want our coaches, the coach, our scouts, the scout, our nerds to do nerd things independently of each other, so that there isn't some infiltration of biases from each. Now, the key and the hardest part, right, is engineering that ecosystem where we can come together, collaborate to compete. And the key is we got to com- collaborate to compete because at the end of the day, the Rams and all that's going on within our organization is way bigger than, than one person, right? Each person may have a more important role. Quarterback may be more important than myself, you know, those type things, but we got to engineer that ecosystem so that we do collaborate and hopefully challenge each other where, okay, wait, there's a perspective there that we weren't thinking of before and now determine whether it's worth using that or not. And I, I do think us internally probably second guess each other more than fans do. That's our job, right? We get to play a game per se. We get to make a decision and, and relatively shortly figure out that decision You know, is an A, a B, a C, or a D, or an F. And you're always trying to do that as fast as possible. So you make as many you know, A's and B's as possible. And I think when the when the moments big those those world series moments when it's down the two and you're 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 you know you're playing for the gold medal or the silver those are the moments right that are going to get the most scrutiny and and you know what you got to you got to live with it and your book would be great for any of us that go through that because what you want to make sure is when you have to live through that moment we were part of losing a, a super bowl a few years ago, right, where we basically were tied with the Patriots going into the fourth quarter and, and they had less than 10 points. We'd sign up for that scenario any day, except we'd probably rather have more points and things like that. But now you got to go back and make sure that you make sound decisions off of that and not just tilting because, wow, you're always going to know that you skied for the gold medal that day, but you only got the silver medal hanging on your wall. And as long as you live, that silver medal is still there and you know that it could have been the gold and there's that PTSD is there. And just the, the key there is being disciplined, not to, to allow that negative emotion to affect what's going forward. I got a question for Les, if you don't mind. Anna. Yeah, please. Because, you know, I think it was week 11 this year where you took on the, the eventual Super Bowl champion Buccaneers, right? On Monday night. I think it was that this past year. You know the week. I know it was Monday night. I think it was, yeah, I think it was week 11. And the Rams are are winning, had the ball with a few handful of minutes to go. You're deep in your own end. And you had a short fourth down yardage situation to go, if I'm not mistaken, and decided to pump the ball back to Tom Brady and give him the ball back with two minutes to go and say, you try and win this game and put the ball in the hands of your defense to, to win it. And this was before the Bucs started tearing off wins. And I'm wondering, was that an analytical decision? Or was that just Sean Guttenfield saying, our defense is playing lights out. Their offense hasn't been able to do a darn thing. The Bucs have been struggling all year long on offense in those situations. Very rare. I, I mean, in my years of covering the NFL and before that on SportsCenter, I, I can't recall the number of times a team basically told Tom Brady, ball's yours, go for it. And it worked. It worked out. Rams won the game. I'm wondering what what was that? Was that analytical driven, or that was just Sean going gut feel right there? What happened? Probably an element of 
let's say the analytics would have been, like you said, the Bucks weren't in sync yet. They weren't, let's call it, in Super Bowl sync right. yet were not. at that point. And on that particular night, our defense was playing very, very well. So, and I don't remember the the exact field position, but I know Sean would have said, okay, similar to the World Series, tonight on this Monday night, our defense has Tampa Bay's offense number, maybe even Tom's number per right. se on that particular night. So what we probably didn't want to do and what Sean didn't want to do is now go for it. And all of a sudden, this huge momentum switch because they now make a big play, right? You, it's almost like you you put the game down into these two yards, right? And so if you lose that play, you give Tampa Bay life, similar to new pitcher coming in, they have better field position. So on that night, punt the ball and now make Tom Brady earn it. And I do believe we won the game with, did. with him throwing an interception. And at that point in time, knew that they didn't have as much time left. They were going to have to throw the ball down the field. So that, that allowed, the analytics would say, right, we know now where to place our DBs and make it very hard on Tom to get the ball down the field. And it worked out in our favor. If we would have played them, Rich, in the Super Bowl, maybe the NFC Championship Different game, story. Because I do believe after that game, and maybe they they played another game. They after played the us. Chiefs. They played the and, Chiefs a week later and got you know came. That's their last loss of the season was against the Chiefs. And then they had their, you know, they probably did their after action review. Annie, come to Jesus moment, and and whatever they determined right after that Chiefs game, actually, you know, I call it ignited a run that, you know. Tom becomes Tom again. But that's yeah. where the analytics come in to play because fourth and one, make it from this part of the field with that much time left, your win probability goes up to this. You punt it, you're actually losing a few percentages off maybe your win probability. You don't make it, obviously, win probability plummets. And 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 then, of course, there's the unnamed factor named Tom Brady or giving the ball back to him. That, I, I honestly remember that game, and I thought, wow, I don't remember the last time an offense just said, here, Tom, you take it. Let's put it on the hands of our defense. But it felt like the right decision that night. It felt like the right decision. And in that moment, take it to the third level, thinking that, I mean, the Bucks defense was very salty. Getting a yard on that defense, that defense has Indomitian suit. They're big men, Vita Vays. It, it is – it is tough to get a yard or two against that defense. Big linebacker, Devin White. They're big, fast, explosive. And so either you were either we were going to have to really use analytics and go outside the box and maybe do a play action pass mm. on fourth and two, or or you're going, okay, everyone knows it's it's fourth and one or two, and and they load the box and we load the box and it's man on man and and the odds of our eleven men beating their eleven men to get two yards was probably going to be the probability was probably not going to be good in us. They, they probably had a good chance of one of one of their defenders getting an edge and, and shutting us down. Cause at that point, everyone knows what's going to happen. It's going to be some version of a handoff. And now it's, I call it, it's more like MMA fighting. Then it's man on man. And that's a tough, tough place to be. So that's a, that's a great call where you're using analytics to prepare for that game. And also at that point, right. Analytics may say, go for it and keep Tom Brady off the field. But Sean had a gut feel, intuitive feel that night that this was our night instead of Tom's. That's so interesting. So I wonder, you know, it's interesting when you say, you know, Tampa was so strong there and, you know, your defense was 
doing really well that night. Like, I want, how do you take those in-game factors into account? You know, so there's obviously, there's places where the analytics are very clear, right? Like, I don't care. Just go for it. You're supposed to go for this no matter what. But then there are these gray areas where it's like, I don't know. It's a little bit of a judgment call. So do you feel like that's where, like, the great coaches are really stepping in and saying, we understand when we're in a gray area where the decision isn't clear, how we're supposed to be handling all these different factors and what matters? Yeah, I think it, Sean would say there's an element of knowing the knowing the data and then knowing the situation. How are we executing? What's the confidence of our team? A few years ago at Seattle, similar situation where it's probably fourth and two, the division's on the line and we're on our side of the 50. So that means if we don't get it, Seattle's got momentum and have, have the ball a lot closer to the, their goal line. But Sean determines we're going to go for it, right? And that's based on how our, our you know, the look in our team's eyes, hey, coach, if you go for it, we got you and we're going to now you know, we'll kneel down and win this division. And then Sean also knowing that, okay, we've been able to run the ball today because there's an element you don't want to just listen to foolish confidence that could be driven by ego or some, you know, aroused testosterone or or adrenaline. So it's all of those factors. And I think Sean does a good job of using what you call gut feel, but that gut feel is determined like Sean might not have gone for it that day in Seattle if two plays before we would have lost one of our starting offensive linemen. And now we are or two, right? And, yeah. and you knew that running the ball might not have been the the smartest thing to do. And it's better to punt and, and play defense. But all of those things come into play. Yeah, this is something I've heard, you know, like Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein talk about, which is you know, there's certain situations in which it's it's a little bit like I've been here before and I know what this is. And one of the examples they give is, you know, firefighters going into a burning building that they have to make these what we, we could think of in game decisions about, you know, is the roof going to collapse? Is this is this, an, you know, a situation in which it's safe for me to go in or go out? And they get very good at those situations because they they can understand in a way that I couldn't what all these different factors are and just weigh them very, very quickly you know, having had that feedback in the past, do you feel like that's kind of a fair way to think about what's going on with somebody, you know, with Sean in the moment there when it's not that he's making a random decision or necessarily that it's completely gut. It's that he's been in those situations before. He knows what the factors are that are really important and he's able to weigh them very quickly to come up with an answer that's more accurate than than I would make. Sometimes when you sort of describe something as your gut, that actually you can break that decision down and you can explain it pretty well, actually less as you just did, right? It's like, what are you seeing in the game? What are the factors that matter? You have to know what matters and that that can't be isolated. So the thing is that you you have to make those decisions pretty quickly. But then, for example, Sean needs to become able to come back and say, let me tell you what I was considering in that moment so that you can create a feedback loop in order to improve those in-game decisions. So I just want to separate out sort of the way that people would think about gut with how you would think about, I have to make this decision very quickly, right? And I don't think that one is disorderly just because you're making it quickly necessarily. Like it's clear that wasn't a gut decision. It was incredibly well-reasoned out. It was just fast. Just fast. Just fast. And I think that that's where people get really confused is, you know, there's a difference between fast and gut. The way that we sort of think about gut is like, I'm just like, whatever that feeling is that's going over me, let me do it. Right. Yes. As opposed to uh, repeatable. Yes. 
it's the repeatability, the way that you talked about Sean's decision. It's very clear that somebody could model that, somebody could learn from it and start to learn how to take those factors into account as well. And, you know, not necessarily, I mean, obviously there's a talent aspect to how, just how good of a decision maker are you in those situations? Or as you said, in the, the 40, like, it's a difference between like just doing that in isolation and having to do that in game when there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And that, that obviously is, is part of what makes a coach great. But theoretically, someone could repeat that decision just on the information that you gave them. And that automatically sort of takes it out of that world of gut. So I, I just, the way that you described that was so clear. Yeah, I think that's, I think we're belittling that those, it's more like when you're playing poker, you're not making gut decisions, you're making. No. You're using your brain and and you can be on the wrong end of the stick like you discuss, right? Right. Emotions are the game. You could be tilted. You, I mean, you're, but you yeah. have to make them fast. So those emotions, right. They do weigh something because right. You might not, your frontal lobe may not. Right. And some of it is like, to, it, it's so fast. You see something. You can't necessarily say what it is that you see, but after the fact you can. Yes. Right. And then, and then you can check in on it to see where you're going. I mean, one of the reasons why I love the way that you put that is that I, I think it's, I don't think it's a great thing to, to tell people sort of one of two things, either you can make a great decision without any thought or checking back in on it. Right. Which, which isn't right. true. Like that would be an accident. But the other is, I think to let people know, like these are teachable skills. You don't just have to be like special with some born with some kind of like sixth sense in order to be a great decision maker, that there, there are parts and pieces to every decision that interact with each other. And you can skill up in that stuff. And the way, again, the way that you describe Sean's decision makes that so clear that these are things that you can skill up in. Are you necessarily going to be, you know, elite? Not necessarily, but if you think about decisions that way, you're going to have the best chance to be elite and you're certainly going to be better. Right. You're exactly right. That's what I said. It's, I think when we use the word gut, that's, there's gut decisions and then there's right fast decisions. Fast decisions. Yeah. And in the spirit of Daniel Kahneman, right, a lot of the slow thought occurs in our case, right? In Sean's case, the week of preparation, the, right. the Monday after the Sunday game to right, do an after action review on what we can do better the next Sunday, and then right, Tuesday through Saturday, putting all of those thoughts right into a plan and then riding faster on Sunday. Right. So, and then as you, as you're closing those feedback loops and that interaction between, you know, what's happening, the more system two decision-making with the system one, which would be like the fast in game system one gets better and better because it, you're, you're creating this amazing feedback loop that that's, that's making those faster decisions get even better. So let me, let me just ask you on Sean, was that a gut feel or what, what was the, what were, what was the thinking behind that hire for you? I'll start by saying, I do think we use the word gut. To me, gut means you're using your brain. And in this day and age of technology, I do think the brain is a very fast and sophisticated and may actually be even faster and more sophisticated than the computer in certain things. So it's, it's more than just your big fat belly that you're using. So I think that gets lost when you, when you go gut. And yeah, in the, in the Sean one, it's definitely not just a gut feeling, but the, the rational thought was in using analytics, the Redskins, while he was calling plays, were top five, even top three in most categories. And at that point in time, they were, you know, they were 
the quarterback's a very important position. So, and they and Kirk Cousins was their starter, and he was a fourth round quarterback. So he wasn't using, let's say, you didn't draft a first round quarterback. So there was two elements there of okay, this this offensive coordinator definitely can utilize a chess piece, a quarterback who's not necessarily someone you got to, even though we got Jared as the number one overall pick, but he's proven to be able to develop quarterbacks, help them execute, help offenses perform well. That's just statistically when you didn't watch them play, you could see that, wow, there's people and you could use the next gen, next gen stats. So there, there's actually receivers. I call it receivers. Let's call it the five eligibles. There's always five people in the offense who can run or catch the ball. Many times, a few of those players are, they're running wide open. That doesn't happen in the league. That means Sean's ability to strategize, you know, his game theorymanship is, is pretty elite. And then, so now can this 30, at that point in time, I mean, he might've been 20, but I know this 30 year old, can he handle, let's call it being the face, the leader of an, an organization and Who's best to tell us that than, than the players? So I, I do know we did you, I mean, we did reach out to agents, players, and, and like I go, don't just go to the quarterback room. Don't go ask Kirk Cousins if if Sean can command the team. It, it, they had some good players. They had some, let's call it, I mean, it, guys like D'Angelo Hall, guys like, you know, D-Jack, who we just signed to Sean Jackson. They had, I mean, we talked to a few of their players. And what was interesting, every one of them basically almost lambasted us for even asking such an absurd question. And they did that in that, hey, you should have hired that guy yesterday. Why are you asking me today? So it was interestingly getting, let's call it that sign off. And and here's a good one, Rich, as, as I know Let's call it my leadership as a GM, ours as a front office. At that point in time, you might have wanted to buy stock in us because we were low. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, okay, hold the, the world's confident in what we were saying. But it was interesting when we, when we had Sean meet with Stan, intentionally had Marshall Falk at the dinner. And Marshall's a you know, Hall of Fame Ram and, and very bright football player. So he's very talented. Some would say he was the most talented running back coming out or wide receiver coming out when he did yep. come out of San Diego State. But he is a very bright football mind. And, and what we figured was we could have Stan Marshall at this dinner and Sean and Marshall would begin chatting football. And if Sean was who we thought he was, Marshall and him would next thing you know, they'd probably, it would be like Rich and Kara in this conversation <laughs> and Stan's over listening to these two humans talk calculus, right? And and that's exactly what happened. So there was, you want to call it a gut feel? There was us, if I give credit to Jim Collins, who's a mentor of mine who wrote the book, Good to Great, he said there, you, you got to shoot bullets before you shoot the cannonball. And by that, right, you, if you have one cannonball to shoot, make sure you shoot your little bullets. And then when you hear the bullet hit the ship, you know, you have the cannonball aimed right. Now shoot your cannonball. So there was these elements in the process of, of, of shooting the bullets to see if Sean was the right guy. And then I think when you meet Sean, you're about less than four minutes in going, OK, yep, this this is it. He's got it. We're good. Exclamation point. Check I love I love the way you broke that decision down. I, I think that was so great. 
just the thinking and I love I I mean for me personally as a poker player I love the game theory of that dinner you know like how how can I think about what what is the, what are the right pieces to put on this board how are they going to interact with each other that's going to get get me to the place that I need to be he stacked the deck Annie he totally he, did he stacked the deck is what he did he totally know? did I love he, it he, he gave himself a pair of aces is what he did literally yeah well, actually, Les, you know, what people might not know about you, by the way, or maybe they do widely, is that you are a voracious reader. So this is something that you really live and breathe is is this space it, in terms of, you know, books that, you know, it feels like you, you're someone who's really taken this idea of lifelong learning and just put it into practice in, in one of the biggest ways that I've seen in anybody. So I would love just sort of passing on for for the people listening. Is there a particular book that you would recommend to people who are really trying to improve their decision making? Like what what book in this space, because you've read so much in this space, has made the biggest impact on on your own decision making and your own thinking? Uh, but this is going to come across like I'm, I'm a... Oh, wait, no, you can't. Be. <laughs> no, but it would be two things. I'm going to say thinking in bets. And here's what here's here's why you say, and I feel guilty because probably hadn't championed enough, but... It's authentic. The, the reason you and I have connected is because that book, based on the the game, the, it's called the gamesmanship of poker. Maybe being less textbook, right? You, you were able to take this wisdom that some very very bright people have probably researched and proven to be beneficial, and you were able to articulate in a way for someone like myself who's in sports, gravitates to, wants to read it, actually wants to finish it. I, I grew up in a small town in Alabama. So if I would have had, let's call it the wisdom that I have now from reading books by you and, and going to the bibliography and, and then reading those books, I mean, if I would have had those, uh, two things, if I had the, the discipline to read those as a, as a high schooler or someone would have somehow taught those skills to me in a entertaining way that all of us high schoolers need. I would, I know this, the, the road after high school would have been less rocky than it was. And fortunate enough to get through those rocky roads and, and be able to be enlightened by people like you and, and, and then use some of those skills to basically help myself in life and make the Rams the best football team we can possibly make them. My wife, Kara, as we mentioned at the opening of this, is, is really the, let's call it the, what'd you call it? Voracious. Voracious. She reads all those books behind you in, in maybe a month. And I'm still amazed at how fast she reads. And then she may say, hey, Les, you ought to read one or two or three of those. And, and I'm able to, to read those. So I got, I got to give her credit. Without that partnership, you know, because she can synthesize information, I, I think, right, this book, this author, can help you do or help you be better at what you do. Because interestingly, when you're in sports, for probably the worst, everything revolves around sports. And right. So any book I read, I'm always trying to relate it to, to what we do here. Yeah. So, so just, just for the listeners, I actually met Les through Kara, who wrote me out of the blue. She's done as more work than most PhDs that I know in terms of reading in the space and decision-making. You know, she is truly just voracious in her reading in this space. And, and so much of that comes out. And, and I mean, she's also just brilliant, I just would like to say as well. So, and I know you, 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 you both are doing a, a podcast. Where can people find that? It's Six Ways of Sunday. And 
and again, unlike Rich, I can't give you hashtags and Twitter feeds, but I know you could go to, let's go to the, the Los Angeles Rams website, WW, whatever that is. And, and from there, use your technological skills to, to find that. So Rich, if you can, you know, I just love, I'd love to get kind of your thought as someone who's, who's kind of observed, observed over the years. You know, as you think about watching and commenting on this game that is so much about the decision-making on the field, and you think about the way that we, you know, we educate our kids to be, to be decision-makers, which is maybe not so much. If you could sort of, you know, if you were like master of education, what decision-making tool or idea or strategy would you want to make sure that the next generation of decision-makers is equipped with? Ah, okay. Rich, you thought it was going to be easy and you get no, to. No, I know. Yes, now I'm giving the, you an like SAT the, test. The, no, I know. Uh, I, Jared I Goff, Max Effort trade. I, I know. I didn't, I didn't think I'd be talking about something writ large, but I've got a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old at home. And I, I just think, you know, courage of conviction might be something. I don't know how that's taught. I don't know how that would be actually taught. But, you know, we, we're, we're trying to teach our children to think, you know, the way they feel and, and have the courage of conviction to tell people what they think. Understanding somebody's, you know, reaction to it would be another, I guess, subset of what to do next. But, you know, in this day and age where, you know, certainly in the pandemic, watching my children sometimes communicate with their peers through texts is just one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen because good old fashioned face to face was gone. And, you know, those who had the courage of conviction to say something could be misconstrued or it led to more recriminations. But I, I still keep telling my kids and so does my wife that what they believe and what we are trying to instill in them is a belief system that they should have the, the courage of conviction to make a statement and, and live by it and move on with it. I just don't know how that gets folded into a curriculum. That's where I guess you're the expert at it. Yeah, well, we will, we will try. We will try. So for leaders who want to find out more about you and your work and see more of you, mm -hmm. where would you send them? I guess after me saying that we've been texting too much and I, I guess to, to go, you know, to my Twitter feed at Rich Eisen or youtube.com slash Rich Eisen to show to see what I do. And again, stjude.com slash run rich run or nfl.com slash run rich run to give money for St. Jude. Awesome. Thank you, Rich. And you as it, usual, man. I just have, I'm so grateful for you, Les. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you having me. And as always, this is educational. It's a great conversation. At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We're building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we're raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and sign the pledge on our website, allianceforddecisioneducation.org. If there's someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at allianceforddecisioneducation.org. For listeners interested in following up on any of the materials mentioned today, check out the show notes on the Alliance site, where you'll also find a transcript of today's conversation. Ratings on Apple Podcasts are always greatly appreciated, 
And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. And I hope you join us again soon. Mm -hmm.